Well, really good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah, we're going to be starting out in Isaiah chapter 8 this morning. So if you want to find that, we are in the midst of the Christmas season. You know, one of the great indicators that Christmas is upon us is that lights show up like everywhere, right? Okay? I mean, you got candles and windows, you go to the mall, there's lights everywhere, you've got, perhaps you've got a tree up and you put some lights there. Uh, you go to hotel lobbies. I mean, some of them are just absolutely extravagant. And I, I mean, I want you to know, like, we join into that. Like, I was really excited about the Christmas season, and I actually put my lights up even before Thanksgiving, okay? I know, but I mean, like, some of my neighbors had them up a long time before then. So anyway, you have lights, and we actually have, like, family traditions. One of our traditions is right after the Christmas Eve services, and by the time I finally get home, we actually... Um, load up all the kids, get some hot chocolate, and somehow this tradition got started for years. We always take one of the cats, and it's a terrible idea. I don't advise it, but, you know, there we are, and we drive around, and we take a look at the lights, you know, and it's, it's pretty cool, except the cat part, you know, all of a sudden, you got like a cat on your shoulder while you're driving, and one time, I actually thought about rolling down the window, but I didn't, okay? I wanted to have a joyful Christmas for everyone, especially the kids, not myself, but anyway, no. And so I, uh, we, we just have this tradition where we look at lights. And perhaps lights likely feature in your Christmas celebrations, right? I mean, just as you drive around, especially at night, millions and millions of like stars of light. And really, it's appropriate that light features in Christmas celebrations. It gets it started in the Mediterranean area and in Europe during the darkest part of the season of the calendar that lights began to feature very strongly in Christmas celebrations. And lights are not meant merely to be decorative. They are actually symbolic. You know, Christmas has a lot of spiritual truths, but the most important truth and the one that helps you make sense of all the other truths about Christmas is that this, our world is a dark place. And I want you to know know something, that hope is born in the midst of darkness. And you're saying like, well, what do you mean that like the world is dark? What does that mean? It means two things. When the Bible speaks of darkness and speaks of both evil and ignorance, and to say that the world is dark, is that it's, there's evil, there's brokenness, there is untold suffering in our world, but there is also darkness of ignorance. No one knows how to resolve it. There is no one that can actually bring healing and resolve the issues of evil and suffering that are found in our world. And darkness is where you find the people of Israel when you open up the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 8, we actually see that Isaiah is writing out, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just how dark things have become. Isaiah was writing in a time where the northern part of Israel was about to be overrun by the Assyrians. They were absolutely uh, afraid for their lives. They knew, and in fact, in just a few short years, they would be absolutely exiled and hauled out of their land. They would know carnage, 
wreckage, the destruction of their family, their way of life, everything would be destroyed. They were in great sense of panic and fear. It was at this time in Israel's history, 700 years before the birth of Jesus the Christ, God had these words written down. And if you want to see the darkness that they were living in, not only do you understand a little bit of the geopolitical issues that were coming, where Assyria was threatening from the north to come and take over the northern part of Israel, you need to know the darkness, the moral collapse that had already taken place among the people of Israel. And the first thing you see is the darkness of occult fascination. Take a look at verse 19. It says, when they say to you, in chapter 8, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? And so we see that the darkness in Israel was a darkness of a fascination with the occult. You got necromancy, people looking to connect with the souls of the dead, mediums to serve as an intermediary where they would try to channel dead people to speak through them. It was occult fascination. And this was something that was explicitly condemned in the law, both in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. They were never to try to conjure up spirits of the dead. And yet Israel's very first king, remember King Saul? He goes to a medium in Endor to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. This sort of behavior was absolutely condemned. And yet ancestor worship and the cult of the dead that had existed and thrived in the, in the areas around also became part of the DNA of Israel. Think of it. The people of God, but they are fully engaged in the occult. Please don't think that they had abandoned worship. Oh, they had worship services going on. But I want you to know that the people's spirituality had been turned to black magic, dark practices, worship of ancestors, the cult of the dead. And I want you to know that things really haven't changed. Do you know this? I, I found this just staggering. That psychic service industry, do you know that its worth now is over $2.2 billion a year for Americans who just pour themselves in to the occult, whether it be Ouija boards or clairvoyance horoscopes, um, they're actually looking at astrology, mediumship, Auras, you can, you can take all sorts of classes to try to connect with the dead. And I want you to know that this kind of spirituality is thriving in our world, especially in the United States. Listen, let me give you this. This is sobering and scary at the same time. Listen to this statistic. According to this survey by the National Science Foundation, nearly half of all Americans say astrology the study of celestial bodies, purported influence on human behavior and worldly events is either very scientific or sort of scientific. Half of all Americans think that the study of stars and understanding your sign and all what's happening, and you pay somebody some money and they're going to tell you about your future, that that is scientific 
Or, you know, there's definitely some science involved there. Not sure exactly what. The same things that we're seeing in our world have been playing out for thousands of years. I want you to know it's really dark. But the darkness was also seen in a scriptural and spiritual famine. Take a look at what he says in verse 20 and 21. These people who should be consulting their God, they're consulting the dead on behalf of the living. Look at verse 20. He says, to the law and to the testimony. You got God's word. You have the testimony of him. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. You know, if you turn from God, Satan has all sorts of alternatives for you to dive into. Little decoys that float by, and the world is enamored. And when you turn from God and his word, a famine occurs in your soul. And a famine occurs in a land when it's widespread among the people. They, of course, still had their worship services, but the word of God no longer was the major thrust. They were not engaged in the study of the law or the testimonies that God has given them. In fact, they were attracted to a new kind of spirituality, necromancy, the idea that we can consult the dead and we, they abandoned the word. And then when you do that, do you notice what he says there in verse 20? They have no dawn. You have no light in your life if you do not have the word of God. And you kind of sober us up because we got a lot of church going on. In fact, in a community like ours, we got churches in almost every block. Some blocks have multiple churches. But if the word of God is not engaged in, and delighted in and studied, like we see from Psalm 111. What happens is you people get, get good at playing church and doing religion, and it's devoid of knowing the one true God, and you lead to a famine, a famine in the land. Isn't it pathetic? The people of God who had the word of God, they never engaged it. They didn't let it grip their hearts. They didn't study it, and they were in a spiritual and scriptural famine. And notice this darkness It's a darkness that even leads to being enraged at God. A rage and anger over authority, especially God's authority. Did you see that in verse 21? They're turning around, they're despairing, they're hungry. And you see that in verse 21? They will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. A great spiritual darkness. When it takes place in a person's life or in a community, or in a country, is that you're enraged at any authority. You're enraged at a king. The idea that God could establish authorities, I don't want it. I will rebel. I am mad. I'll I'll show you how mad I am. I'll blow things up. I'll burn buildings down. I will create all sorts of havoc. I will turn into an anarchist to show you just how angry I am. And of course, that's just on an earthly level the authority of a king. They really rebel against the ultimate authority, God himself. And look at him. You know, see what darkness looks like? They are enraged and they curse their king and their God as they face upward. Can't you see it? I don't want him. I hate him. 
and I'm enraged. Friends, that's a deep darkness. But what did you expect? You abandoned God, his truth, his testimony. Next thing you know, you're hating God. It's a great darkness. And then, of course, you know, where do you go? If you're mad at God, you've abandoned his word, you despise his testimony, you do not want any authority because you're the new authority, you're the little God of this world, I want you to know, then you will focus on the earth, and it is a great darkness. It's a darkness of just being focused on the world. Look at this, verse 22. They're cursing God and shaking their fist as they're facing upward. Well, look, verse 22, where do they turn? Then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. When you're done looking up, you just focus looking down. And this earth, it becomes your new God. You, I mean, you're going to give yourself to the planet. And we see that. I mean, I want you to know that it's pretty easy for the earth and this world to become your all-consuming passion. It's your religion. It's your hope. It's your focus. And we see that. I mean, it's widespread. So much so that we'll have massive uh, gatherings of people and, and leaders from all over the world to discuss these issues because the world is our focus. We're not really concerned about God, but we're really concerned about this. And I, I mean, it's, it leads to an absolutely illogical conclusion. Well, the problem is people. So we have to have a lot less people. That's the answer, right? Because the earth is our focus. And so they will look to the experts and the scholars and the mystics, the people that despise God and do not want his word or his testimony, they will think that the experts of the world have all the answers. And so let me show you what they, look, what they turn to. Some are going to turn to the state, to government, that the answers reside in government. We will get experts, people that will tell us what to do. We will have the expansion of government, and they will take care of us, and we will be okay, and that's where we're going to have hope. On the other hand, you got some folks like, no, nah, I'm not sure about the government. I'll tell you where it's at. It's the market. And if we just have the market be able to run and do whatever it like wants, why, we will resolve these issues. And so you got folks, some thinking, we need a lot more government. Folks like, no, less there. Much more on just the market emphasis. I'll tell you where everybody's got agreement, though. Technology is the answer. Everyone thinks that technology, advancement in technology, is going to resolve the issues that we face. Several years ago, um, there was an ad that was put in the New York Times, and it said this, The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. It's the idea that intellect and innovation will resolve the issues of our world, whether they be nuclear conflict, conflict ethnic violence, a failing to treat people with dignity, all race issues. All of the answers are found in our intellect and our um, innovation that technology can bring about the answers. And I'd just like to ask you, do you really think that's the case? Do you think that it is possible that humanity can resolve 
the issues that we face. Everyone agrees that we are facing issues. Most are going to say, yeah, it's a type of darkness, although different people categorize what is actually dark. And now we actually are living in a land and a world that uh, what is true and what is good is actually called evil and vice versa. But we all agree there's some problems that need to be resolved. Do you think that humanity can resolve these issues? I want you to know that the world says, I think we could do it if we just all come together, if we all will become unified, if we will just agree that these are the problems and uh, we'll be able to resolve these issues and we will be able to, like it said, to live in unity and peace. And I want you to know the answer, if you look at all of human history, not just most of it, all of human history, the answer to that question is no, absolutely not. In fact, how could we? Because the problem is much greater than what we see. The darkness is much deeper and much darker than I think we've ever understood it or ever defined it. I mean, let's look. You got violence, injustice, abuse of power, homelessness. You got refugee oppression, families ripped apart. You've got endless grief. I mean, it is everywhere. You know, that was true in Isaiah's time. That was true in Jesus' time. And it most certainly is true in our time. And yet, when you look at the news, nothing has really changed. In fact, it seems to be getting worse. What did you expect? You abandoned God. You abandoned his word. You're shaking your fist. You're rebelling against authority. Guess what? You're going to get a rise in crime. You got uncontrolled lust. You got atheism, deceit, moral depravity. You got this cultivation of gender confusion. You got fear, disease, you got all sorts of addictions, drugs, alcohol. You throw in the psychics as well with all this mess. You know what you've got? You got the deep cauldron of darkness. And that was true in Isaiah's day, and it's true today. But you know, before you go pointing like, well, the darkness is over there or with that group or that, those folks over there, there's downright evil, right? You need to take a good long look in the mirror. Because you know where the darkness really resides? Within us. Our hearts. Our fallenness. Depravity runs deep. The darkness is great. What we need is hope. Humanity cannot solve the world's problems. We need God. And until you are at that point where you're like, you're right, this is a God-sized problem all around me and within me, you're going to continue to plow forward in darkness. But God has brought hope. Take a look at chapter 9. Hope is born in the gift of God's Son. When you come to Isaiah chapter 9, there's a shift from the present in Isaiah's time to the future. And you see this ship where you go, where you're seeing this celebration of hope, this poem. It's like a, a song. In verses like two and following, it's, it's like this beautiful song of celebration. And notice what he says, chapter 9, verse 1. He says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali with contempt. But later... 
on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what he's saying is this. In chapter 9, verse 1, Zebulun, Nephtali, they're way up north, even though they are just about ready to be overrun by Assyria. And Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian, they're going to come in just a few short years, and they're literally going to take over. It is going to be a highway of gloom. But God makes this promise. It is going to be a land that's going to be glorious, this way of the sea. Because what's going to happen is this northern part of Israel is going to be overrun by Gentiles. Many of the Jews are going to be hauled away into Assyria. And yet, God says, I want you to know the future. I am going to bring hope. This same land that's considered like a highway of doom and gloom is one day going to blossom with light and joy. It's going to be the glorious way. It's very interesting that Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, he references this verse and points out that the hope, this promised Messiah, he's going to come out of Galilee. Guess where Nazareth and Jesus, basic, most of his ministry takes place? In Galilee of the Gentiles. And then notice this. He says this, in the midst of this great darkness, look at verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Light stands for God's blessing, his presence, and his revelation. All of this is found in the incarnate Son of God, in Jesus. And he says, humanity can't save itself, but God can. And he is going to step in. There is, in the midst of all of your darkness, going to appear a glorious light. And we think of light, light is delightful. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. It gives joy. But light also does this. Light shows us the truth, right? Isn't that how light functions? So for instance, last night, in the midst of the darkness, if you get in your car and you need to drive somewhere, what is it that you turn on besides the car? Yes, thank you. First service, no one knew that. So glad all the smart people are in this service. That's right. Or you had driver's training. Good job. You got it. You turn on the lights. Do you know why you do that? So you can see, right? And so if you turn on the lights, all of a sudden you can see, oh, these are cars that are parked here. Oh, that's where the road is. It's over there. Oh, that's a person's house. If you don't turn on the lights, that's you last night. Like, oh, I knew I was missing something. I couldn't see, right? I ran into this car. That's what God's light is. It's truth. He tells us as it really is, what we really need to know. And I want you to know that the only reason that you can know anything is because of God. Have you ever considered that? God is the one who created you. God is the one who gave you a mind. He's actually given you the ability to comprehend. You're not just smart because you've just figured a lot of things out. I want you to know that it is God who has given you these abilities. And furthermore, God has not only given you the ability to know things, 
God has revealed his truth so that you will know things as they really are. That's why he has given us the Bible, his scriptures, so that we will see and know truth. And just like when you turn your lights on in your car, you're going to be able to avoid all of the things that are going to lead to devastation. And furthermore, you're going to stay on the road and move forward. And that's what God has given us. He has given us light. So the text says, the people who walk in darkness, guess what? They're going to see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And furthermore, look at verse 3. And you shall multiply the nation. God had made a promise to Abraham that he's going to be a great nation. Here it is being referenced again. You shall multiply the nation, and you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. In darkness, you have gloom, fear, fright. But in light, when you know the light, when you're in the light, you have gladness, joy. There is, he is going to make you glad in his presence. And he's the one who's going to do it. In fact, he talks about the kind of gladness it is. He says, as with the gladness of harvest. Do you see that in verse 3? So if you're a farmer, we got farmers in our church, you know when they're happiest? It's pretty evident. They just kind of come floating in here. Do you know why they're happy? Because the harvest is in. That's the happiest time in a farmer's life when they got those crops in. They're accounted for. They got a lot of joy. And then he references not just farmers. We, we see that, like well, the harvest is in, even warriors. Look at the end of verse 3. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. When is a soldier the happiest? When they have finished the battle, they have won, and they are alive, and then they get to receive the proceeds, the booty, the spoil. Ancient soldiers, the happiest time. I'm alive, we made it, we won, and all of this is mine. That's a great joy. And that's what he's highlighting here. God is the one who is going to bring this kind of joy. And then he says this in verse 4, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. He says, God is the one who's going to break the yoke of the burden. And this idea of yoke was used of oppression, especially by foreign nations that would come and dominate another. And so you know what a yoke is, don't you? A yoke is when they get some animals and they kind of put that yoke and they tie them together in this big wooden plank, right? And they're strapped in there and they use the, those oxen who are kind of tied together through that yoke to plow the field, and be able to use the farm implements. It's interesting when you look at uh, some of these uh, pictures and depictions of when countries would take over another, they would sometimes just use humans as those animals to plow their fields. It was the yoke of oppression. And God says, right now, you're in darkness. You got darkness within, you got darkness outside of you. But I'm going to break the yoke of oppression. And furthermore, all of these implements of war, I'm going to just burn up. Look at verse uh, 5. He says, For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. The booted warrior, the Assyrians were known for their marching. And it was like this march of doom because they would march 
And, and when they did, it was just this, and when you heard that army coming, you knew it was over. And one of their intimidation um, tactics was to take garments and they would soak them in blood of people they conquered and they would wave them. And it was, your next. This is you. Your blood is going to be on the next garment. And what God has Isaiah write is like all of those implements of war, the boots, those rolled up garments full of blood, it's just going to be fuel for the fire because I'm going to bring absolute victory. And where is this victory going to be found? How is it going to happen? Here's what's staggering. The victory comes through the child. Look at verse 6. This is, by the way, the centerpiece of all Christmas prophecies. Now, Isaiah had given us a hint. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he said this, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. What, is that, what does that name mean, Emmanuel? Anybody know? God with us. And here's a sign, like a big one, never happened before. You will know that this child will be born of a virgin. That's going to narrow it down to one, and that's going to require God to do it. But here when we come to chapter 9, verse 6, you have the centerpiece of all Christmas prophecies. For he says this, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. A child will be born to us. He's going to be a son of man. It underscores the Messiah's humanity. He's going to understand us, our weaknesses, the frailty, what it means to be human. He is truly human. But then he says, not only will a a child be born to us, but a son will be given to us. The Savior's preexistent deity, it speaks of the fact that he is the son of God. His fullness of deity is going to come. And this is the profound mystery. The eternal Son of God has entered into humanity. He will come as a child, and he's going to be given to us. It is a gift. Do you see that? I I really don't want you to miss this. This is God's gift to the world. If you want hope, if you're done with the darkness, let me tell you where the hope is. It's in this child. A child will be born. A son will be given to us. The only way you actually uh, become the beneficiary of the gift is if you receive it. And so the first part of verse 6 speaks of the first coming of this child. In verse, chapter 6, verse A. The rest, the rest of verse 6 and verse 7, speaks of the second coming of this child, of this son of God. And notice what he says. He is speaking of the future, of this second coming, when he says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That's really interesting. The government is going to rest on the shoulders of this child. He will grow up, and in his second coming, he will govern all things. It will be a visible government. He will be a visible king. Right now... We're in between the first coming and the second coming. We celebrate his first coming at Christmas. 
And I want you to know that his kingdom is reigning in the hearts of all those who are fully yielded to him and trusting in him. But one day, it's going to be a visible kingdom, so visible that even those who will not yield to believe in him, like believe that he's really the Messiah, they will still have to bow down. It will be a visible government. It's interesting when you read this text, though, he actually then tells them that his name, and his name is going to signify his character, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You know, haven't you noticed that during presidential elections, that sometimes when you listen to their stump speeches, they get sounding a little bit messianic. It makes me nervous when I hear things like this. Because all of a sudden, you have these politicians, they're not even blushing. They're just stand up there, and they make all these grandiose promises that they can keep America safe, or they can restore our standing in the world. You know, like the problems like the Middle East? Vote for me. I got it. We got some big issues in this world today, don't we? Iran, Russia, China. I've got a plan. I'll bring them to the table. I'll work this out. You vote for me. In fact, I'm feeling so good today. Throw in North Korea. I'll resolve all those issues. That guy, I can work it out. I'll send a basketball player over there. We'll make it work. It'll be fine, right? And they, and they make these claims. And it sounds eerily messianic, doesn't it? You know, it's just like this. It's like, hey, listen, put the government on my shoulders. Watch my government increase, and you can see what I'll do. But this really kind of explains just why politics is so toxic in our country. We have these guys and gals, and they're making all these great and grand promises of what they can do. They generally don't even have a plan, but no one cares about that. It's like, oh, you're just going to do all that? Awesome. I'll vote for you. And then a few months later, you find out like, what? Whoa, this is even worse than I thought. You're, you're not doing anything that you said. In fact, we're going in the wrong direction. And it's so toxic because then you just are so sorely disappointed. And all these many people, they're not putting their hope on God. They're putting their hope in a politician. You know what happens? They feel really let down. They are so disappointed that another would-be Messiah simply can't come through on their promises. I'll tell you, there is one who the government will rest on his shoulders. It's a child. You want hope? Hope is found in this one. Notice his name signify his character, his titles. He is, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. You know, a counselor is someone that can help you, especially when you've got great difficulties in your life and you can't see how this works or how to move forward. You want a counselor, you want to find someone that's biblical, that knows God and has wisdom. God himself is going to enter into humanity. He is the wonderful counselor. He understands every aspect of what it means to be human. I want you to know there's no other religion in the world that is like Christianity. Here is another of its distinct, unique features. God himself enters into humanity and all the issues that humans face to demonstrate once again the personal nature and the truthfulness that he is the one true God. He understands pain, poverty, family dynamics, hard work. He understands frustration, betrayal, 
You know pain? Let me tell you who really knows pain. The one who entered into humanity, God himself. He understands everything about us. And when you and I are going through our difficulties and our challenges and how can this be happening in me and and I, I don't get it, I want you to know there is one who can guide us into hope. It's the one who's the wonderful counselor. You know, when Jesus came and he was speaking, you remember what they would say? Whoa, no one, never has a man spoken the way, the way this man speaks. I'll tell you why he could speak that way. Because he is God. And he is a wonderful counselor. And his beauty and his truth, he can break your addictions, addictions to pride, sex, money, power, the things that are so alluring that so many people are caught up in in their great darkness. I want you to know that God is a wonderful counselor. It's this child. And he guides us with his scripture and through prayer. He puts you with his people. And his name is Wonderful Counselor. This child also has another name. He is Mighty God. Do you see that? He is the one who can forgive sin, defeat Satan. He can liberate us from the power of evil. He is the one who can actually restore our soul, answer our prayers, actually give us a certain hope. You and I can actually have joy because God not only can point the way and counsel us, he can actually do it. He is the mighty God. And friends, what a paradox this is. I mean, think of it. The promise is that a child is going to be born. A son's going to be given. And when that child was born, where was he born? Well, she gave birth, Mary gave birth in a manger. And yet, with the appearance of Jesus, you have this baby placed in a manger. Why, you have a star that had appeared it guided people from a long ways away to come and make an appearance to worship. It, this, this baby's birth led to all sorts of havoc and consternation among King Herod and people in Jerusalem, just, just a few miles away. When, when Jesus was born, shepherds gathered, and the midnight sky all of a sudden became like midday with the glory of the angels. Why? Because he's the mighty God. And friends, our hope is not found in our circumstances. Our hope is found in Jesus, the child. And so let me urge you and encourage you. You keep going to Jesus. You ask him for strength, hope, peace, perspective, and power. He's the one who can provide these things. And furthermore, he is known as the eternal father, literally the father of eternity. He is, this, this speaks of, the, of a king who is benevolent, and he is the one who is the great protector. This isn't the uh, using it in a Trinitarian form like we know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but this is used like they would use it in ancient times to speak of a father, of a king, who is a protector and a provider. This one is the father of eternity. He is the king that can be counted on. He is absolutely loving and gracious. He's the creator of heaven and the earth, and he cares for you. That's his name, Eternal Father, the Father of Eternity, and he is the Prince of Peace. You know, this word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of fullness, fulfillment, realized hope. This is where we find our peace, 
not in the darkness of the world, certainly not in any political candidate. We know that peace is found in this child who is born. He gives us a peace from God. He gives us the peace of God because that's our problem. If, if darkness lies within us, we need someone who is going to address the sin issue in our life and that's what God does. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Until you are trusting in Jesus as Lord and Messiah, if, if he's not your everything and all of your faith and hope is in him, you are still in darkness. But when you trust him, when you receive this child, you have peace with God. His righteousness is given to you. You have the peace of God, and you have peace with God, and you even have peace from God. God will give you his peace as we trust in him, trust in his sovereignty and his leadership. And it's like an ongoing daily, sometimes hourly decision, Lord, I am trusting in you. But he is the prince of peace. That is why we even sing of it. Like, you remember like a song, like, it is well with my soul? Sorrows like sea billows roll? Does your life feel like that sometime? Like, whoa, it's just one problem after another, man. It's daily drama, and I feel like I'm singing, and I never thought I would go through such pain, such anguish, right? But when we focus on Jesus, he's the captain of our soul. He is the king of our life. He is the prince of peace. And notice what he says in verse 7. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. It just keeps getting better and better and better. More peace. And on the throne of David over his kingdom. Remember from last week that promise in 2 Samuel 7? That David, you're going to have a son that will reign forever. This child is that king, the throne of David over his kingdom. And to establish it and to uphold it with justice and unrighteousness from then on and forevermore. Is God really going to do this? Seriously? Is God really going to bring this kind of king, this kind of government, this kind of peace and hope? Look at how verse 7 ends. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, I know a lot of people aren't thinking about it. Most people have dismissed it. No one is really processing it. We just try to find our meaning in this little bit of life here. I want you to know God is trying to expand the horizons of our mind and our hope. He's going to accomplish it just as he has said. It's an audacious claim, really. When you look at all the crime and the brokenness of our world, I mean, just look at what takes place. We have murder on our streets. We got we got people getting killed in our schools. We have the murder of the unborn in mother's wombs. Serious? Can God really bring hope, peace, and make it all right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Ray Ortland put it so well. He said, you know, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. That's where our hope is. That is the only hope for this world. Friends, I hope that the government of your life is resting on his shoulders. I hope you know that he is the king and the peace of your life. And you're saying, you know what, Grant, I would really like to be in that kingdom. 
I would like to have that king. I've got really good news for you. A child has been born and a son has been given. All you need to do is receive him. And if you do know him, this text is calling us to take the only message of hope to the world that a child has been born. You see, we have hope because hope is born. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Isn't that good? You see, the only hope for our darkness is to know the light of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord.